0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski, and we have the one and only, again, for round two, the master of differentiation, negotiation, the one and only, Anthony Anarino. Nick, why should
1: people listen? Armand. Anthony wrote a wonderful book called Eat Their Lunch. And while I'm normally not an advocate of pilfering somebody's lunchables in the cafeteria, it's actually about winning competitive deals, which is sort of part of the focus of this episode. I've learned a lot from Anthony and I don't know, it's a fun one. Three, two, one. All right, Anthony, welcome back to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three.
2: Okay. Number one, develop the insights that allow you to be one up in the conversation with your client. So you have to be in a position where you're leading them. That's the most important thing right now for salespeople to get a hold of. Cool. What's number two? Information disparity. So for a long time, people believed that now that there's the internet, that your client can go out and learn all of the things that they need to know to make a good buying decision. And that is absolutely incorrect. You have to correct for information disparity and help the client understand how to make a decision so that they can get the better results that they need. That's our responsibility now.
1: Love it. What's number three, Anthony? Round us out.
2: You have to stop doing traditional, legacy, outdated, 100-year-old discovery calls because they've been completely commoditized. You create no value and you repel your prospective clients away from you by giving them a horrible sales experience.
0: All right, let's dig in more on that. What am I doing to horribly botch my discovery calls today?
2: Let's imagine uh, salesperson number A goes into the client's office and they say, let me tell you about my company. We've been in business since uh, 1992. We have uh, these investors in our company. We've got a brilliant CEO. Everybody loves him. He's a genius. These are the kind of clients that we're working with. So let me show you the logos. And then let me tell you about our products and our solutions that we believe are going to help you with this pain point and problem that you're experiencing. Okay. So that happens. That's salesperson number A. Two days later, salesperson B comes in. Salesperson B says, uh, let me tell you a little bit about my company. And then I'd like to ask you a couple questions so I could learn something about you. And then they go and they explain their company, which sounds exactly like this thing that A said. And then they tell them about their clients. And then they tell them about their solution in this very contrived way that we've been taught. So now let's say three days has gone by. They saw A on one day. Two days later, they saw B. Now it's three days later. And we go up to that person and we say what was the difference between salesperson A and salesperson B? And they will say something like, I think salesperson A was a little bit taller and I think they had lighter hair. And I'm certain that one of them had a green logo and the other one had a blue logo. And that's about all I can tell you is different about those two individuals. This is the commoditization of the most important part of the sales process. In every single salesperson that's been brought up with legacy approaches, and listen, I'm not throwing any stones. I, I practice all of the legacy approaches. I even know how to do a high-pressure sale, and, and I actually executed that uh, early in my career. I was able to execute that. So I've done these things. I know them. And I know right now that it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because there's no novelty, there's no value, then it's completely self-oriented at the beginning. So we have two people to blame for this marketing. Marketing says, to tell them the story and then product people come around behind them and say, explain the product to them because it practically sells itself. And, and Armand, I know in your experience selling a SaaS solution, you really don't have to do anything except take the order. I mean, everybody's just trying to buy SaaS solutions all day long, right? And you don't—it sells itself once you show them the great features and benefits. They're like Armand, how fast can I have a contract? Or maybe that doesn't really happen.
0: Uh, you know, fortunately, I uh, at five six strong, I usually win the the height battle that you referenced, so people <laughs> remember me as the the tall guy, and then people just they just buy. Um, but for, for all of the other plebeians out there, where people don't buy, Anthony, yeah, I'm curious. Instead of throwing up my NASCAR logo slide, one of the issues that you mentioned earlier is buyers are already coming in mind with two or three things that I'm looking for, or all of my check boxes that that I need to hit, and so I jump on that call. I'm running a discovery
2: call for the first time. How should I start it instead? I would start it with an executive briefing. So I would say if you're going to make this decision there's a couple of factors that are probably going to dominate the decision or should dominate the decision for you. So I want to tell you some of the trends that are going on in our industry right now and how some people are solving this in different ways than others. And I want to tell you why we think these things are the most important at the beginning. And so then I'm going to explain to them with data why this is better than that. And now why data? Uh, You can argue with me, but you can't argue with data. Data is a lot harder to argue with. Data tends to trump any opinion that someone has okay so if decision makers make decisions and they're trying to figure out how to make the best decision what kind of help do they need help making the best decision Help making the best decision you're really good at this move to the front of the class armand we have to move you out of the way now this is the part that people don't get like when you show up like here's some great facts about my company that doesn't help me make a decision Here's some great pictures of logos of people we do business with. We must be good, right? We must be, because look at these logos. Does that help me make a good decision? No. Uh, We have this great solution. It has features and benefits and advantages. Doesn't help me make a good decision. So what should you be doing with your time when you have a client who's going to give you their time and attention and are charged with making the right decision for their business? It goes like this. They're uncertain, so they don't move because they're uncertain. And then you have to give them the certainty of negative consequences if they don't make the right decision, if they don't change. So you go, uncertainty, certainty, but not certainty that we're a good company, not certainty that my solution's going to work. That's not the beginning of the sales conversation. The beginning of the sales conversation is, why do I have to change now? And why do I have to consider these factors to, to make the right decision here? That's the starting point. I need you to understand that there are negative consequences, that accrue to people who don't make good decisions. Then after that, once they believe they have to change, now they're uncertain again. Now I need to know how's this going to work. And then I have to give you the certainty of positive outcomes. Now I can tell you the reason we do this this way is because it ensures that you get the positive outcomes. And the reason we showed you a picture of our CEO in this presentation is because we already told him about you and he told us to give you the resources that you need so that you can succeed. Like you have to tie everything back to them, it's you're trying to serve them. If you think that you're trying to sell your solution, you're making it really hard because you're trying to sell your solution. What you're trying to do is help the person make the best decision for their company. And I would argue that the person who they trust to help them make that decision, Chris Beal from Connect and Sell says it this way, people buy from people that they trust more than they trust themselves to make that decision. So they're trusting somebody they believe has more information that would help them make a better decision than they could make on their own. So now you understand consultative selling.
1: Look at that. I'm done. I'm ready to go. I want to ask you a question. One of the things that I've always been taught to say is, hey, I've put together some agenda items and some things that I'd like to talk about today, but you're the customer. You're important. You might have some things you really want to make sure we cover today. Can you let me know what you'd like to accomplish with today's call? Sometimes when I say that, the customer completely derails the agenda and they start peppering me with like fact-finding questions about SLAs and what we cost and how many customers we have. That's question one, like, how do I handle that?
2: Yeah, I I mean, you can try it. I'm, it works perfect, but you have to also recognize that what you're doing, the way that you do this, when you get derailed, it's because you let go of control of the process. So right. you've invited them, like if you want to change this, even though it's not going to serve you, even though you're asking questions that aren't necessary for you to need this information, because we're not even past why I change, you, know, you, you let that happen. Yeah. So I'm the boss of the, of the sales call. So the reason I'm the boss of the sales call is because I do this every day. I help people get better results and I know the conversation that we need to have. Yeah. You're going to have a lot of questions. We're going to answer all of those questions. But the best thing to do is to put a frame around the conversation at the beginning. And let me try to say this, Nick, without hurting your feelings. Cause I you won't I, hurt my feelings. Really I'm like always you, interested
1: but... in being improved, not being approved, Anthony. The
2: the way that you stay in the meeting until 4:30 is by deserving to have the time between three o'clock and four That's how you do it. So you can say, can I confirm this? And they can still be going like this the whole time. They can still be looking at their watch and they can say, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I got to go do this thing. And trying to lock them into that time is not as powerful as being powerful in the conversation. So they stay with you because they're learning so much and enjoying the conversation and recognizing that they're going to have a better decision at the end of this. So let me just say this here with you, because I've not said this to anybody, but I'll say it here. The sales process is designed to make the salesperson successful. The sales process is designed to make the salesperson successful. That's what it's for there. It's not to make the buyer have a great decision. It's to sell your stuff. That's what it's designed for. And we've been promised that if you follow the sales process as it's written and you do exactly what happens, you win at the end. And that isn't always true. And it's because that process is designed more to serve you than it is to serve them. So now you have to switch your thinking and say, I'm facilitating a buyer's journey. I'm facilitating a needs-based buyer's journey. They need things. I help them get the things that they need so that they can successfully conclude that. And Nick, you have to just occupy the space that you have. So the space that you occupy is I'm on up because I do this every day and you're talking to me. And generally, you can tell if you're one-up, it's the other person is paying you. Like If they're paying you, they needed the help. So you're in the one-up position. You have to occupy that. So I would just caution anyone listening to this. Don't take a position where you're trying to manufacture what you want to have happen without doing it through the sales conversation. So the tie-down that you want to do or, or the Sandler upfront contract. David Sandler called people from telephone booths and said, it's raining outside, and I came all the way over to meet you. Uh, Will you please let me in? I mean, that was the tactics in 1967. So when you start studying these things, you have to say, is that principle uh, or is that a tactic that should exist in a different time? Because I'm going to tell you, you call somebody now and they're going to be like, dude, you need a raincoat. Like you, you're you going to have to get to the airport and you got to walk there. You need some galoshes. You're going to need to get warmed up, man, because they're not going to let you in with that. Like not, I'm not going to give you a sympathy, uh, win. Like it, it, those are just super, super tactical things. Prove it, just prove it. Be the person that knows enough. Anthony, my question
0: is, you know, I, I tend to do a little bit less of like the formal upfront contract, but, uh, what I do do is, There are solutions that Nick and I have sold in the past. He sold an ERP in the past. I sell a compensation tool that can solve for 10 different things. And sometimes the way that I start my calls is trying to understand why they took the call in the first place so I can get a sense of what directionally is important to them. Because I feel like if I brought a point of view on the 10 criteria that are important for their decision, I might miss the mark entirely. Or they might be like, sure, but like, we're not focused on like half of the things that you guys do. These are the things that are important to me. So are you literally doing that on your first call or how do you deal with presenting some insights when your solution might solve for 10 different things and you need to figure out what use cases best first?
2: Yeah. So I'm going to start with insight. So first thing I'm going to say is uh, Armand, the first thing that we think is probably the most important thing for you to be thinking about as you think about compensation just generally and how you structure these things and how you deliver whatever it is that you deliver there, Armand. Right now, 40% of people in the United States that have jobs are prepared to quit. Uh, 60% of the 40% are prepared to quit even without another job. And they've decided that they don't want to do the work that they did in the past, and they're open to looking at new opportunities Many are going to leave before they have those new opportunities. It's called the great resignation. If you're not following that, that should be something you talk about now because compensation is one of the huge factors. So that that is something that's happening right now. The other thing is, is that the experience that people are having at work is not up to what they want anymore. So a lot of the people that are leaving are like, the experience here is not good enough and I'm leaving. And part of that is compensation, and part of it is how they're treated, and part of it is the transparency on things like compensation. You can go in two or three Google searches, find insights to say, so one of the factors that we think is important is to have the compensation structure that allows you to show people that uh, two things, one, that it's going to be attractive for them, and then two, that it's going to be a way that they can grow and you can retain people in a very difficult environment. So I'm going to set the conversation up about what are we really doing here? We're not talking about software that lets you make compensation decisions or to track those things, whatever it is. Uh, We're here to talk about how we help you have a structure that allows you to grow your business. So I'm going to level four. Why? Because they don't care about level one, two, or three. They don't care. So I got to go, what do they care about? Why am I worried about compensation? Because I'm losing people or because I can't get the people that I need. Or because it's not transparent and people don't understand it, or whatever the problems are that you solve. But I'm gonna go up a level to what the strategic outcome is, because I know when I'm talking to a decision maker, then then they're gonna hear something very, very different from me. I don't wanna sound like anybody else. I wanna know more. I wanna know more about compensation. I wanna know more about labor markets. I wanna know more about what causes people to be retained and why they leave uh, that that's now part of what you need to know and understand. And there's tons and tons of data that you can get from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And I said this earlier, the reason I like data, like when you argue with me about staffing, you're arguing with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Census Bureau, Forrester, Gardner, Corn Ferry, McKinsey, uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) I mean, like, how many sources do I have to give you? Like how many sources before you go, like that's a lot of people that says that's true. Like you're not arguing with me anymore. You're arguing with the case that I'm making and the case is backed up by data. And so then I I have a different situation with people because I'm showing up and I'm teaching them something that they didn't know, but that they like to know.
1: Can you talk to me about your opinion on slide decks in the sales process?
2: In the sales process, that's different. So I like four slides, for an executive summary. The first one in my slide deck is the fact that uh, HubSpot ran a a poll that's called the uh, Not Another Marketing Marketing Survey. (laughs) And that's the HubSpot name for it. And the first bullet point that I pulled out of that was that 29% of people say that they want to talk to a salesperson as part of the discovery about a product. And 71% said, I would rather do my own research because once I talk to a salesperson, they're going to push their agenda on me. So that's the first bullet points that I have there. So 29% want to meet with you and 71% don't. So what does that say about us? What does that say about the experience that we're giving them? It it tells us that the commoditized discovery call with the, the upfront contract taking away their autonomy. I'm taking away their autonomy when I do that, Nick. That's what I'm doing. I'm making sure you have that. Instead, I do the opposite of you. I don't know if any of this is going to make sense for you right now or not, but I'd love to share it with you. And if there's a next step, we'll both know that. And if not, you'll know how we think about this. You're free. I, I, don't, need to t- I don't need to like handcuff you to the chair while I give you the slide to the presentation. I want you to be an active participant in the conversation with me. So I go the other way. Now they feel like they're free, so they don't have to worry about me pushing them in a direction. And instead, I can have a conversation about how to make decisions. So I have a a very strong opinion on opening up with a deck that starts to answer the question, why us? And that is the worst possible starting place because it assumes they've already made the decision to change. They already know how to make that decision. And that all they have to do is understand how good you are, and then they can say yes. Yes but they've not had those conversations. They don't understand how to make the decision. They don't know how you're different from the other one. And it's impossible for them to make any sense out of that, except for you wasted the first 18 minutes of the the hour with them. And rather than that, get into like, what's real in their world. And, you know, that that's a different thing. So from the second slide, uh, in my deck, um, we we start talking about the fact that 57% of the decision is made before they meet with a salesperson. And the the reason that they do that is because they save about, according to Gardner, and I believe their their data is probably right. They spend about 17, 18% of their time talking to salespeople. So that's it. So you're getting maybe 6% of their total buying process. You're getting maybe 6% and you decided to use it on a slide deck, that doesn't really address why change at all. And that doesn't give the client a good experience. So I don't think that you should sell with a slide deck in that particular way. Now, I like showing people data. I like teaching them. I like making sure they understand how to make the decision. But that's a different slide deck. And you don't need 100 slides to do this.
0: But let's take this in a slightly different direction. So Anthony, you say that, you know, X percent or 50 plus percent of the decision is already made before someone is talking to a sales rep. And this happens to me all the time is there are competitors that are more established and feature for feature do close to everything that we do. And I find them coming onto a call and they're like, Hey, like I was looking at this other tool. And then I also heard that you guys do this thing too. And so like, We were looking in that direction in the first place, um, but we wanted to see what you got, right? And so that first time where I'm already slated with a competitor situation, what
2: do I do from that point forward differently in my Discord? Yeah, now you have to pivot to something else. And uh, there's a number of things that you can do. I mean, I I would probably start by saying, Armand, I appreciate that you reached out to us. And if you reached out, it means that... um, I suspect that you're open-minded to looking at something that might do something a little different than other things that you've seen. Is that true?
0: That's right. Yeah. So,
2: yeah. So if you're open to looking at something new, I've got a a view of this that I can show you. Uh, It's a little bit different than what you might expect, especially if you've already seen a few other things. And ours is different in just one particular way, and that one particular way is what really is our our ability to generate the best possible result. So let me start there with this and ask you if it's important for you as you think about compensation. How important is this as it, it pertains to attracting, and uh, and communicating your value proposition to people and retaining people and being able to manage? I don't know what your software does, so I'm riffing, right. but you can feel you can know you know what really goes in those spots. But it's something beyond the software. So your job is to own the narrative. And the narrative is, if these outcomes are really important to you, then there are certain decisions that have to be made so that the money shows up in that particular way and that the results show up in that particular way. And that's how we built our model. There are other models, and those models have many good things to say about them. So now I'm going to sing the praises of my competitors and say, they have really, really worked hard. To get the lowest possible price and and they've done it it is absolutely the lowest possible price now uh, that works really really well if price is the most important factor for you but if it's not the most important factor for you then you have to recognize that when you take money out of the solution that means that you as the client are making some concessions now you may not know the concessions right now and you might not know the concessions until after you sign a contract but generally when you buy the lowest price of anything you do find out that there were some concessions that had to be made so that they could give you that price. What we've done is said, we're we're not going to do anything that would take money out of the solution so that we could guarantee that the client gets the results that they actually are paying for. And they do pay a little bit more. It's maybe it's eight pennies, Armand. You got eight pennies. You walk around with a, an engagement ring in your pocket, like many of them, I think I heard you got a pocket full of those things. I don't know, but Uh, you, you, you talk about it's eight pennies more on on the dollar, but you're, you're going to get the value that you can't get when concessions have been made. So you tell me, is it important enough for you to invest a little bit more? Yeah, it's a game. You got to be able to tell the story though. And, and your, your model maybe has a concession too. So if you have the highest price, you have one concession. You have to pay more for this. That's the only concession. You pay a little bit more. After that, there's no more concessions. And that's a different model.
0: And Anthony, you're talking about there being a cost to making these concessions when you go with a competitor. Let's take competitors off the table. And let's say that someone is just fighting me dollar for dollar. There's no more competitor in the environment. I'm pricing them at 100K. They want me to be at 50K. And one of the things that I've learned over time is creating a cost to them negotiating. So they have to make trade-offs. So I'm curious if you're doing something similar or how you approach it when there's no competitor in play and people are asking you for discounts.
2: I'll go, I can go 96. I can go to 96,000. That's not a problem for us. Um, I, I am going to ask you though, to invest a little bit of time in so we can make sure that we get this done. Cause I'm going to pull a little bit of money out and I want to make sure that you got skin in the game. Is that cool? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Like, and I'm giving 96 because you anchor me at 50. I have every right to break that anchor. I have every right. That's not a serious offer. So I don't have to pretend it's a serious offer. And now if he thinks my foot not a serious offer, well, guess what? You started it. And, and generally, that's how it works anyway. Like You're going to go with smaller and smaller increments every time you have a negotiation. I would do one, though. I would just do one and say, this is what I can do. After that, I won't have anything else that I can give you and still get you the results that you want. I mean, you can start by saying, when we had this conversation, it was really important for you to have this particular outcome. Did you change your mind around that? Because at 50,000, you can't have that outcome. You can't have it at 50,000. I'll give you something for 50,000 if you want, but it can't be that outcome. What changed for you? And, and why do you want to take money out of your own solution in the first place? Like, why do you want to? they don't know why they want to i'm supposed to ask you for a better deal okay you did i went from 100 to 96 you got a better deal i never gave anybody that deal before i've given people ten thousand, but i've never given them four <laughs> this is
1: this is awesome we're, we're running out of time anthony this has been one of my favorite round twos that we've ever done And again, we're running out of time because we got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really good best practices that salespeople should be doing. And now we need to flip that on its head. And so my last question for you is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to stop doing because it hurts them more than it
2: helps? When you believe that asynchronous communication, and I know that like this is the Silicon Valley ethos and everything is supposed to be Slack and we're supposed to not ever communicate with each other. Uh, It's a horrible, horrible idea for salespeople. Phone first, always. And you always make the phone call first because if you get someone on the phone, you don't need to send an email. And then if you get them on the phone and you get a yes to a meeting, you don't need a sequence. And you can tell your marketing, your chief marketing officer, I don't need a sequence because I can just call people and talk to them on the phone and get them to give me a meeting. And uh, that, that is where you have to be. And look, if you're afraid of calling people, you're never going to be a great salesperson. You're not. You cannot be afraid of your client under any circumstances, whether they're a prospect, whether they're an existing client, whether they're mad at you, whether they're an aggressive negotiator. You're the one that has to be in charge of facilitating their buyer's journey, because if they do it, Armand, they're going to do something dumb, like ask you for 50,000 when the deal is 100. Like they'll do stupid things. And you have to try to prevent them from hurting themselves and their results because they're in our care when we're with them. Like they're in our care. We're the ones that are helping them make sure that they don't hurt themselves because when they make bad decisions, they hurt themselves. They hurt the people on their team. They hurt their company. They hurt their own customers and their clients. Nobody benefits from this. Nobody benefits from this. So you have to do the work, be one up and uh, and make sure you take care of people.
1: Oh man, I'm gushing. Such a good episode, Anthony. Is there anything that you want to promote before we jump off here?
2: In March, there's going to be a book that is released and it is going to be called Elite Sales Strategies. And it's because the publisher is afraid to call it one up. I'm not afraid to call it one up. Uh, And when you see this book, it's 10 strategies uh, that all together will make sure that you're one up in every single conversation. So maybe you can do something about that when we get closer, huh?
1: Absolutely. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap from me and Armand coming up soon. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by influ 2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. And if you want to get your prospect's attention you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with influte to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes.
0: Your top four takeaways from this episode with Anthony Anorino include number one, Lead with insights to show that you know their business. And that brings us to number two, don't assume that your customer deeply understands their own world, which brings us to number three. Tell them what they should be considering in their evaluation. I personally probably use this one the most where you're saying, hey, as you look at these tools, these are the four or five things that are important in your evaluation and then educate them on the differences. And then lastly, when you do, number four, differentiate on the model, not on the
1: features of the different competitors in your space. righty, Nick, that's it. How can people help us? Well, Armand, when we recorded the intro to the show, I thought back to my cafeteria days where actually nobody stole my Lunchables. I didn't even get Lunchables, but it made me think of some of my good friends from high school who, some of whom are working in the sales space. And I thought, you know what? I haven't talked to them about sales because I mostly just talk with my colleagues about my profession. But you know what? If you're listening here and you've got some buddies from back in the day that you want to share this podcast with and you can point to this outro to say the host told me I had to share the show, we would deeply appreciate it. That's all I got. We'll see you all next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by influ 2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using super cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now we worked with Influe to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes.